This is episode 125 of The Creative Giant Show. I'm Charlie Gilkey. Thanks so much for joining me today. Why is it that some people reach a certain level of success and then plateau or self-destruct? Toku McCree joins me today to jam about what we've experienced in ourselves and our clients. And Toku's insight is that people often struggle with the guilt of getting what they want. Feeling that and moving through it is the path of growth. Ready? Let's do this. Welcome to the Creative Giant Show, where we go behind the scenes about what it means to live a life full of creative and professional success. Creative giants are talented, renaissance souls with a compassion-fueled bias towards action. Now, here is your host, Charlie Gilkey. Hello, Creative Giants. I'd love to introduce you to Toku McCree. Four years ago, while living in a Zen monastery, Toku took a vow to liberate all beings from suffering. The only thing that makes Toku different than most people is that he took this vow seriously. For the past four years, he's built himself and his business to do just that, create freedom and end suffering. He's worked with brilliant minds like Leo Babauta of Zen Habits to create without boundaries. He's worked with marketing giants with clients like Pepsi and Nestle to end the suffering caused by uninspiring leadership and a lack of high-level collaboration. Having worked over 30 jobs, hiked over 100 miles in national parks, grown and cut off his never-fully-awesome dreadlocks, Toku coaches brilliant minds with his big-ass heart. He's working to create a world where trickle-down enlightenment flows forth from the wise and compassionate leaders our world desperately needs. Toku, thanks so much for joining me today. You know, and we've had a lot of great conversations, um, private conversations over breakfast, over walks. I'm, I'm happy to have this conversation here. So, just um, the season, and, and thanks for being here. Yeah, super happy to, to be talking to you. Sorry that it's uh, through a computer screen and not over like greasy Portland diner food, but we'll, we'll have to survive without the, the hash browns and bacon. Yeah, um, our hearts and our readers and listeners thank us. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. Amen. All righty. So today's jam, we're, we're going to be talking a lot about um, the obsession that a lot of entrepreneurs and leaders have with tactics and doing and how that's actually um, stifling their growth, both business and professional, both business and personal, right? And so the setup here is um, Toku and I both experienced that you get to a certain level of success and um, you reach that growth plateau. And trust me, there are always those growth plateaus. And when people reach those plateaus, it's one of the first things they'll start doing is say, well, I need to update my strategy or I need to update my tactics or I need to do something different, right? And they're not fundamentally focusing on um, what's going to make the biggest difference. Um, so that's where we're going with this one today. Um, I'll let you jump in here because this, you know, when we talked about what we want to talk about, this this was your um, your inspiration. So um, set us up there. Sure. You know, I think I work with a lot of uh, successful entrepreneurs and, and leaders. And uh, one of the things that I, I realized again and again, is especially when you start to really get to the top, top 10%, even top 25% of the field, the tactics just start to flatten out, right? Like there's just your, your competitive advantage at a certain level of tactics. It's like, yeah, you can make the button blue instead of green. And yeah, you could use a different infusion soft funnel to like, to add a few more subscribers. But if you really want to have this big impact that you want to have, if you really want to change the world and, and the way that you have a vision to change the world, you get to a certain point and your being really comes into play. It's no longer like what you're doing as a leader, what you're doing as a creator. 
your ability to lead people, both your followers and on your team, like relies really heavily on who you are as a person. But people think they can just keep all of their same crappy habits and just keep becoming more and more successful just by tweaking widgets. And you just, you can't do it. It doesn't work. Yeah, I think this is a particular challenge with, um, you know, people in say the 42 to younger bracket, because there has been, especially with online business and online media platforms, there's been this acceleration of um, influence, right? That um, you can get influential faster than you can actually update your personal, emotional, and social sort of cortex that it takes to power that, right? And so the reason I'm bringing that out is because obviously if you were a relative nobody, you know, two years ago, and all of a sudden you've got hundreds of thousands of people paying attention to you, right? Then it's like, oh, well, the same thing that got me here, like i.e. tweaking buttons and pushing buttons and maybe adding an opt-in form there or doing this type of thing, that's what I need to do. I need to do more of that, right? When it's fundamentally like, no, you have to grow into this position of leadership and influence. And that's not about the tech. Um, now, I'm a, I'm a digital strategist, so I will say opt-ins and pop-ups and things like that actually do make a difference. Um, they're incremental differences, though. They're not the metamorphosis sort of change or not that really disruptive change that will um, let people go from – Or here's the way I talk about it with my clients – I, I say um, your operating assumptions have not caught up with your reality, right? Your operation. And what I mean by that, the way in which you actually make decisions, the way in which you actually respond to things, the way in which you actually see the world do not reflect the reality that's right in front of you. Um, and you keep making decisions based upon that. So for instance, a, a client, I was talking to him recently, um, like the way he thinks through his opportunities are based upon where he was two years ago. And a lot of times I'm like, no, we're not doing that. And he's like, why? And I'm like, because that's the least valuable thing that we can do right now. <laughs> right. Because of X, Y, and Z. And he's like, but it was a good, I like I've been thinking about it for a while. And it's just one of those things where it's like, well, um, you thought about it too long or it wasn't a live opportunity. <laughs> right. And so it's just updating that sort of, um, so, you know, we were teasing before we started the show about deeply abstract and philosophical topics, but uh, <laughs> here's where I'm going to reference um, um, reflective equilibrium. And this is from John Rawls, right? Who really pushed it where the basic idea is that we have a theory about the world and we have different beliefs, right? And sometimes, excuse me, there, we have an experience of the world. We have a theory about the world is the way that it goes. And sometimes when our experience of the world dramatically is different than our belief about the world. We got to switch something, right? We have to switch something because we can't live in this cognitive dissonance of having the world be one way, but our theory about the world be completely different. So the reflective equilibrium is like, which changes do you, you know, normally we change our theories to fit the world. Um, sometimes we make even, um, we, sometimes we dismiss the world like, Oh, that can't be true because of our theory. Right. Um, yeah, and I mean, I think that it gets even worse when you see people who change the world they change in uh, shift so dramatically with their success. I mean, you know, the easiest examples are like professional athletes and young professional actors, right? So, you know, you take a guy, um, you know, who, who grew up in a, a disadvantaged community, a person of color, most people around him have never experienced economic success, you give him millions of dollars, 
And then, you know, are you surprised? And when a few years later, he doesn't, he doesn't have any money. And, you know, um, the ones that are lucky, uh, you know, develop role models and mentors that help them kind of change their perspective of the world. But the truth is, is that, um, you know, our, our functioning systems are really based on connection to and belonging with the tribe that we grew up with. And we want to stay in alignment with that tribe, right? And so we keep getting pulled back into it unless we really change the world you're in or we change the group we belong to. And that can be really, really difficult to do. And so uh, that's why you see people really get to a certain point and then, and then dive back, right? It's why so many young stars implode, why so many um, athletes who make a lot of money end up with no money because they didn't change the sort of perspective or view they have on the world. And, you know, this is all great to say, you know, look, you know, let's, can we get better financial advisors in the NFL? That's awesome. And like, you know, can please Miley Cyrus put on some clothes. Um, but it's this question of like, for the, for us, for people who are successful, who are building businesses, where can we be looking at being, where can we be looking at how we're, what our worldview is as an opportunity to leverage that possibility, right? I mean, you look at, you take, um, you take kids from the inner city, you give them more opportunities to be to have books, give them more mentors, and their their success and their results improve dramatically. And so, if that kind of a, that ability, that focus on belonging, that focus on worldview, can have such a powerful impact on those people, then it can have an equally powerful impact, even if you're really really successful. The problem is, is that you know, if you grow up in a worldview where you know there's poverty and not a lot of opportunity, changing your worldview can be a little bit easier. It's like, well, I don't like this worldview. I want a more optimistic one. The hard thing is to realize that the same worldview that helped you make millions of dollars will keep you from making billions of dollars. The same worldview that helped you build a successful company of 20, 30 people will keep you from building a successful company of 300 or 1,000 people. Absolutely. And the thing about it is when we're looking at the success side of things, it's not like you're broken. It's not like you're doing something like, you know, there, there are so many people that get caught up in, and I, I, did I write about this on the blog? No, I wrote about it. This in the campfire, right? There are so many people that get stuck at an eight or a seven or an eight out of 10 in life, right? And when you look at them, you're like, wow, they're an eight, right? They're doing great. And the work that it takes to get from an eight to a nine is really, really challenging because you've cut all the, like you cut all the fact, you, you got all the low hanging fruit, like you've done all the easy things, right? When you, to get above an eight, you got to start going inwards and start really like burning a cleaner fire inside, um, and that's not about what's going on outside. So on the one hand, you can't necessarily listen to all the best practices and advice from everyone else because they may not be there. Number two, um, you're, you can end up in this sort of no man's land where you can't say like, you know, what's Toku doing? What's Charlie doing? Cause Toku and Charlie live completely different lives. We have completely different values. We have different, completely different um, you know, um, drag points and, and completely different things that are keeping us in a comfortable, you know, the comfortable gilded cage that we've created for ourselves, right? And how I get out of mine may not be how you get out of yours. Um, so you've got that going on and you have to work your tail off to go from an eight to a nine and then to go from a nine to a 10. It's even more work. And it's like, ah, I'm just going to do the thing that, that got me here that wasn't that hard. I'm going to keep doing the thing. And if I do the thing, then it's going to make a difference, but it doesn't. And the second thing that we have to look at is this is really, we see this more in celebrities is that um, there is a um, yearning for attention and there's a high off of that attention. Right. And so you mentioned Miley Cyrus in a certain way. Well, she can't go back to being normal. 
right? Because up until this far, everything that she's built has been built upon attention and influence. And the more people that watch and click and talk about her, the better off, quote unquote, in this, in the material world she is. So to tell her, you know what, maybe, you know, put some new clothes on, maybe having, you know, maybe have like a haircut that's maybe not that often, like doing those types of things. Number one is pushing a sort of normativity that we want to be careful about. But the other two is we have to explain that like what is making you happy now may not be what pitches you to the next level of happiness. At the same time, she's filthy rich, right? Uh, we, we assume. We assume. I mean, I don't know her accountant. I mean, that's the thing. You don't, you know, you never know, but we're very good at comparing our insides to other people's outside. So let me put it this way. She can buy stuff. Yes. <laughs> that, 18 of us put together cannot buy. Amen, brother. So whether, how she gets it, I'm not sure, but I'm just saying <laughs> um, at a certain point, and that's the funny thing that you mentioned at a certain thing, at a certain point, um, how you acquire stuff changes, right? Cause it's not the exchange of cash. Like mm-hmm. we got to pay for stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we, we can't leverage our likeness to get something else. Mm-hmm. Um, and so even the whole way that you understand how to, acquire things and how to be in the world has to shift um, to account for that. Um, And sometimes they they shift in some ways, but again, this internal stuff, right? Um, This, who do I want to be in the world? How do I want to show up? What, um, what, what, I'm I'm thinking of a quote, let's see, quote here, something like it's, it's better to be more aware of the one flaw that you have than the thousand of flaws in other people. Something like that. It's a, it's a biblical quote, I think. It's a, why don't you remove the plank from your own no, eye? No, it's not the plank not from the eye. One? Not that one? Not that one. Not that one. Not that one. Um, but it's a sim- in a similar vein, right? Um, you know, paying attention to oneself. Um, but so the question becomes, and, and this goes back to, um, well, all of the spiritual and practical philosophy traditions, um, which is why are you better off? If you're at that sort of level, right? And you have to go through all this sort of internal work. In what ways are you actually better off, right? Um, And so the Greeks posed it this way. In what way is a more virtuous man happy, right? Because it seems like being more virtuous in their language (laughs) requires a lot of work. You end up poorer. And you suffer a lot more. That was the argument. Forget which one of the Greeks put it out there, right? But it it has a certain ring to it, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Because you could just keep tweaking the button. You could just keep doing what you're doing and and being at that point. So what's the payout? I mean, to me, the payout's huge. I mean, and it depends on what your purpose is, right? I mean, I I think very few people just have the purpose to make more and more money. I mean, maybe, right? But at a certain point, that starts to feel itself like a hollow pursuit. And so you know, people, people want to be a 10 in all areas of their life, right? They don't want to just have success. And what you find is that um, my friend, uh, Adam, Adam Quiney, he runs a website called Evergrowth Coaching. And he has, a, he sent out this really cool thing on Facebook called uh, Noble Sacrifice and talks about this idea that people at the top level of success do this thing called Noble Sacrifice where they go, well, in order to have this thing that I want, I have to give up this thing. But it's a sort of false choice, right? In order to like, be happy in my fifties. I have to like kill myself and work all the time now without really asking the question, like, could I actually make a lot of money and not work that hard? 
right? Or, and how can I do that? Like, what's a clever way to do that? So they just assume like the only solution to this is just to, like work harder and harder and harder. And they don't really look at what's possible to create a lifestyle that I want and make more money, right? So the results of, of doing this kind of being work are you can make more money and enjoy your life more, right? You can actually have good relationships instead of two or three divorces under your belt. You can um, have a relationship with your kids, right? That are, that are, that are positive. Right? A lot of successful people have really bad relationships with their kids. You can have a team that like, isn't just constantly churning through. I mean, I, I remember I talked to a, a really successful entrepreneur one time who uh, from the very beginning of our conversation was like, I don't believe in coaching. I don't know why I coached him, but I tried. And he was just so, he was just, any idea that I, I put through this worldview, he just like batted it away. It was like playing ping pong. And, um, and so the thing was that I, I was talking about his team and he was like, no, I don't have a problem with the team. And I talked to someone else on his team about him. And they were just like, he's like, he has constant turnover. Just people are leaving his team constantly. And he just thought, well, the people weren't up for the task. What he wasn't able to see was his personality, his way of being, was so difficult to be around that he was just burning through people. And talking about economic costs of the business, recruiting, losing systems, losing good people, the turnover that, that your customer experience when you have team members turnover, I mean, that stuff costs a lot of money. You can change a widget from blue to green. You're never going to recoup the cost of losing a valuable team member. And, you know, and then costs like having good relationships with your kids and with your partner, you, know, you could spend millions of dollars and never create that result. So uh, I think the results are, are huge. I mean, they're really um, inconceivable, right? And, and, and what I've noticed is that people at the very, very top of the game, the people in the top 1% or 2%, most of them have mastered not just the tactics, but they've done a ton of work on being. And that's why people like everyone, like Richard Branson gets more business deals, not be, just because he's a great business guy, but because his being is like, everyone just likes Richard Branson, right? I mean, sure, somebody does. And people are just like, oh, he's a cool guy. And like being a cool guy makes you money and friends. So who doesn't want to be like that? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of the Midas touch, right? It's, it's, you, you get to have the double whammy of being someone that people want to hang out with and being someone that people want to do business with because they trust you and like you. Right. And we know that we do business and we develop partnerships with people that we know, like, and trust. Right. Um, and so you know, really what happens is at the core, and this is going to go somewhat psychological here, but at the core, when you, when you dig under sort of the uncoachable sort of thing, I don't believe in coaching. Like, I'm, like there's some deep rooted fear or insecurity down there, right. That manifest in all sorts of other things. Right. And so you see it in the world and it's kind of one of those things where we, we project our inside um, on, on into the outside and other people's thing. And a lot of times when we are at that point, we're like, uh, like I've got everything figured out. Um, I don't need an advisor. I don't need a coach. You know, I don't like, I've got it. Well, I think that's when the fall starts, right? I, I think that's when the fall starts and, you know, you and I are both coaches here. And so sometimes people, um, people come to, so, you know, Toku, when someone says, I don't believe in coaching, it's, it's, you know, I, that's a diversion for <laughs> me. Like I have no time playing. I have no patience for, for doing coaching whack-a-mole. Right. Um, because then I'm trying to convince you of, of something that number one, you're convinced that you don't have a problem. Number two, you can, you're, you're convinced that, that a method of revealing that problem is not going to reveal the problem. Like, mm. you know, I'm done with that. Right. we can talk about all sorts of things. I can love you as a person. I could wish you well, but that whole, now nah, coaching whack-a-mole, no time for that. Right. Um, 
but the thing about it is, is like, they'll come to us and it's like, so why should you invest in coach? Cause I'm already at the top of my game. And I'm like, so was Michael Jordan, you know, so was Tiger Woods. So were the, you know, top politicians, any leader that you look at at a certain point, they either have um, a mastermind group that they're a part of either formal or informal, or they have a coach. Right. Um, but I think this is just an aside thing. People look at coaching because of the way it's sometimes used in the organizational space as a remedial thing. Like, oh, this person is not quite meeting the standard. So maybe if we get them a coach, like if, like I'm an executive coach. So sometimes people just have trouble delegating and prior, prioritizing and communicating, and that's keeping them from going forward, right? And so people from the organization will be like, well, maybe we can get them an executive coach to work on those things. And so it's really about like, remediating particular behaviors as opposed to on the other side of people who are at the top of the game who um, can have someone help them go that much further, you know? Yeah. And, well, I mean, I think that you know, not just to pass the buck off onto everyone else's mindset. I think the other problem just from being in the coaching industry is that there's a lot of really bad coaches, you know? So, I, I mean, I get it when you go to a networking event and somebody tells you they're a coach and then they like, give you an angel card and they're wearing like feathers in their hair and they just, you just don't take them seriously. It's really hard to be like, yeah, coaching is a serious profession. And yet, you know, the profession of coaching or this sort of perspective on coaching or even spiritual guidance, like has been around for a really long time. And, uh, you know, coaching is sort of what it's being called now, but it, you know, the problem is that there are a few diamond in the rough, really great coaches. I, I definitely count you among those, the coaches that I know that are really excellent, but um, you know, I can count on probably two hands number of coaches I know that are really, really awesome. Well, maybe a little bit more than that. I'm in a group of really good coaches. That helps. But, um, you know, most coaches I meet, they don't, they don't really, they actually haven't done the being work necessary. They think I can go to a certification program on the weekend, you know, I can do this thing and then I can just be a great coach. And it's just, they don't understand that coaching is way more than about tactics too, right? It's really about um, it's about your being. It's, you know, I've had clients come to me and say, I was like, what do you want to talk about? They're like, I don't know. I just wanted to like sit in a coffee shop. with you. And there's just something around being with a person who has done that work on being, who's done that work on themselves. It's really, really powerful. And so, you know, when I, when I go out and look for a coach, I'm not looking for, you know, resume. I'm not looking for whether they worked at Ford and whether they worked at CNBC. I'm looking for what's their being like, how do I feel when I'm in the and so I think that that's the other reason why people kind of reject coaching is they've had a lot of experiences of coaches whose being is in alignment with their marketing and it's a problem, you know? Um, and I think people are probably asking the question at this point, like, okay, great. All this being stuff is wonderful, but like, what do we, what do I do about this? Right. And, you know, it's, we're not going to get too much into tax success when it's about, but one area I think that can be really powerful for people to look at one area that I do a lot of work with my own clients around is um, are you willing to experience the guilt of getting what you want? Because usually the thing that happens at the plateau is that you have pushed the boundaries of your worldview to the point where to move beyond that point, you have to change the groups you associate with and the kind of person you think you are. And when we get to that point, um, we push up against this really strong biological system called guilt, which is designed to keep us belonging to the group we've been belonging to for a long time. And it means this feeling of guilt that you're, you're violating some rule by being more successful, or you're going to leave some group of behind by being more successful. And so I think that if you're looking to do being work, getting really, really comfortable and familiar with your own experience of guilt is a great place to start. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad you went there because, yeah, a similar question that I'll ask people once they start reaching that point is, 
Um, what do you think you'll have to give up that matters to you to get this next level of success? Because at a certain core and they're like, I don't know. And then you do the coaching and you do sort of thing. And you're just like, well, if I go to this next level of thing, then I'll have to give up my relationship with my kids. and I'll have to be a worse mother. Or if I go to the next level of thing, then I'll have to alienate myself from my family. Or it's always, you're right. It's always, it always comes down to people at a certain point. Right. Um, Sometimes, sometimes it's, um, and this is particular with artists or, or people who consider themselves artists of different kinds, they feel like they have to give up something that's the integrity of their work. Like to have this commercial success, I have to be dumbed down or I have to be become popular or I have to do these types of things, right? And so they're kind of like, I have to give up my artistic integrity to reach this next level. I'm not willing to do it, so I'm out, Right. Um, but it's also the guilt thing. I have to give up people. And you know, what I want to say here is that when we look at the basic hero structure that we get from, um, you know, um, wow, I can't remember his name. Come back. Hero of a thousand faces, Joseph Campbell. Um, you can also read Robert McKee, right? When you look at the hero structure, there's a, there's a critical point in that the hero can never really go home. The hero can never really go home and be comfortable there. Right. And that's whether it has to be true or whether it is true or whatever. Like, I think that's a common people, a common person's experience is that you go out and, you know, I've experienced it with my own family. It's like you go out and you do great things and people know you in a certain way. Um, then you go home and you're treated completely different. And you're like, what? I, I can't reconcile who I actually am with who I am in this relationship. You know? Yeah, I mean, I, to me, the most like easy example of this is like if you ever go back to your like your old elementary school, everything looks so tiny. You're like, man, these, these chairs are tiny, and the desk. And, I don't know. The, the gym used to be huge, and and you know, it's because your being has changed so much since you were in first or second grade that of course everything looks totally different. And yet, we're so attached to our worldview of everything looking the same that we're unwilling to shift our being because it makes the familiar unfamiliar. Right? It's it's really hard and. And, um, you know, to really get beyond a certain point, you have to be willing to experience the guilt of getting what you want. You have to be willing to experience this feeling of, of I'm going to feel guilty because I'm making money off of my art, even if you're not sacrificing your integrity at all, right? Just because a bunch of artists, right, for a long time have been saying, if you make money off of art, you're not an artist anymore. And so to belong to our group, you will have this belief that art is supposed to be pure right? Which is total BS, right? I mean, there are many, many very successful artists who have been really pure innovators in the art space. And musicians are a great example. I mean, there's some really innovative musicians who have been you know, super innovative and made a lot of money with what they've done and been very clever about it too. And so, you know, what people think is they go, well, if I do this, people are always trying to create innocence. They want to feel like they can belong to all the groups at the same time. And the truth is that you get to decide what group you want to belong to. You get to decide who you want to be, but you can't do it without some experience of guilt or some experience of violation of the belonging of a group, right? Which may be guilt, which may be a feeling of irresponsibility, maybe a feeling of selfishness, maybe a feeling of loss of integrity, right? Um, but this idea that your guilt is somehow related to the actual balance of good and evil in the world is, is crap because plenty of people do totally awful things without any guilt. And plenty of people feel crazy guilty about things that don't make any difference at all. So this feeling of guilt or innocence has nothing to do with actually being good or evil. What it has to do with 
a belonging you create throughout your life. And so to be successful, you have to be willing to experience the guilt of getting what you want. Yeah, what I'll say is the guilt is not necessarily a, a signal. Sometimes when you do wrong things, you feel guilty. Yeah, it is a signal that, that you know, you did something wrong. But um, yeah, on that same note, it, it's, it's kind of from existentialist philosophy here. Like not choosing is itself a choice, right? And that can be really hard when you look at, you know, different socioeconomic contexts where like some choices are dramatically harder than others, right? Um, it's dramatically harder for someone who lives in rural Appalachia to like start networking with artists who live in New York, right? That's not just such a live and easy option as it is for someone who's in New York who, who might have better access to it. So just because it's, it's a choice doesn't mean that the, that the range of choices are, it's, it's as easy for some people to make choices as other, but at the same, at the same thing, like, here's the thing you, um, the thing that you have the least amount of control over is to what group you're born into. You have no control over that. The thing that you have the most control over in your life is which groups you belong to. So there's this weird dichotomy. You can't choose where you started and the groups you started with, but you can choose the groups that you're going to grow with. And um, I think part of it is, um, and I've personally had to experience this and, and part of it was really um, amplified and or affirmed through my military experience and that you don't leave people behind. Like you don't like leave people struggling. You go back and get them and drag them through. Or even if they don't make it, you go back and get them and pull them through. And so there's a long time because that was so, it's so much, still so much who I am that I'm like, well, you know, I'm here and I know how I got here. X is there. Right. And they're kind of in the, in, they're kind of struggling back there. Like I can go back and help them. Like I can, I can pull them <laughs> through this right in a lot of ways. And the trick is, is that that's, that's a prudence call because sometimes you legitimately can, right? Other times you can't. Like if I go back in there and they're, they're sort of that uncoachable sort of situation, I'm like, you know what? I can't like, I no, I'm gone. Right. Other times they just needed a hand. Right. But in that process of going back and forth through, for hate the metaphor, but it's a good one, the battleground of life, right? Um, you can't get out of it yourself, right? And so, um, Toku, I think you know this, and I'm comfortable sharing it with it. One of the things that I'm working on right now is learning to be good when there's not a crisis, mm. right? Because built so much of my life, like I'm great in a crisis. I'm great when, when things are rough and when there's challenging, like I can shine, I have not really practiced that much, like being really awesome when it's calm. You know, a lot of times I'm like, what do I do with myself? Like what, what, what's my value or where's the fight that I could be a part of. Right. And that wrecks one's mindset, you know, um, because all of a sudden you figure out like, why is it everywhere I go? There's a fight. Well, no shit, Sherlock. You can't <laughs> right. Why is everything in crisis? Well, cause you find a way to get involved in them. Right. Mm. Yeah, you're creating problems so that you can solve them. Yeah, um, because that's what you're good at, and there's social belonging and the and the positive feedback loops and everything that's around that. Like, in in our society, I've I've experienced one of the things I've been working through and journaling through is we don't have a lot of um, appreciation and or celebration for people who manage to avoid all the crises, right? Mm. Manage to avoid all things, right? We we actually judge them quite harshly, right? Mm. Um, if you have a good uneventful life. And it's like, 
well, that's great for them, but the rest of us are called in the struggle. Right. Um, and it's like, well, um, uh, it's Seneca, right? No one get, no one becomes wise through chance. Mm. Right. What's his insight there. And, and basically, um, coming from a stoic tradition, what he was saying is like, no one becomes virtuous. No one ends up in a good life through mere chance. It's always work. Right. So follow on is that. So if you see someone who's wise, you see someone living a good life, don't harshly judge them. Instead, try to learn from them what they're doing. Yeah. And I mean, I think that I've been on my own journey, definitely around this being piece, especially over the last year and a half. I remember um, at uh, Camp GLP two years ago, um, I remember right before that I'd made this promise to myself that I was going to find a way to be one of the best coaches in the world, to be one of the most successful coaches in the world. And I was like, I'm willing to put everything on the line, including my relationship and my life and every aspect of my being. And the result of that vow that I made was that over a year and a half, I went from being a, you know, okay, like somewhat, you know, okay, personal trainer making $20,000 a year. So this year making over six figures, right? In a year and a half, most coaches work 10 years, never do that. And it was, it was because, I mean, sure, I learned tactics. I mean, I busted my ass when it came to learn tactics. And I, you know, stole every bit of tactics from anyone I could, I could do. But it was because I did the being work that I think made the biggest difference for me. And it was really hard for me to get over this place of, it's okay for me to have a nice apartment. It's okay for me to, to be with a woman who um, is better than any woman I've ever been with before. It's okay for me to work with clients who have had tons of more experience than I and built businesses I've never built. You know, it was really hard for me to step, step beyond the being that I created for myself. And yet, as I challenged it really by practicing with guilt and, and stepping into what it felt to be this new person, my being has grown dramatically, right? It's, you know, uh, you know a couple, couple, two and a half years ago, I was shorting $45 an hour for a session. And now I've got clients coming to me offering me, you know, $200, $400 an hour. I'm going, no, nah, I don't have room for you. I have clients I want to work with instead. And, and just the, the being that I had to change to be able to do that is just was so dramatic. And um, for me, it, it was really, it was hard because I realized that to do that, I had to leave a lot of my family behind. I had a lot of leave my old friends behind. And I had to leave a relationship I had been in for two and a half years behind. And it was really hard to step beyond that and realize it wasn't what I wanted anymore. And so um, I still am just really working on being, and there's this question I'm asking for myself right now, do I need to slow my business down to allow my being to catch up, right? Which I think is a question that people don't ask a lot about their businesses. Like, do I need to slow my business down so my being can catch up? What they do is they keep growing and growing and growing until they implode or so the business blows up um, or they're off doing drugs and cheating on their wife. They don't take that question. Do I need to slow down? And my coach told me, he goes, you know, you can keep going because you have fast learning curve, but it doesn't mean you have to, right? And maybe this year is the year that I work myself out of a job. You know, I was talking to another one of my coaches. He said, you had a six-figure year. Now you want to make 200, 300K next year. He goes, what if you just made the same amount of money in 2017, but worked half as much? And I was like, that sounds great. I want to do that. But it's almost like blasphemy to say in the world of business, I want to make the same amount of money, but enjoy my life more, right? That seems crazy. And so, um, you know, that's why this, that's why this being worker. So I'm so passionate about it because I see so many people who have the trappings of success, but are still trapped in the same suffering they brought to that success. And, you know, I'm not in the, I'm not, I'm not interested in helping people make a lot of money. All my clients that have made more money have always quit after three months because it's just not that powerful. 
it's the clients where I've worked on their relationships, worked on how they deal with their team, worked on their being, helped them feel anger and joy the way they've never felt before. Those are the clients that keep coming back, that keep doing the deep work, that actually change the industries they're in, the businesses they're in. And so that's why I'm really passionate about this being work because it's the work that actually makes all the difference. Yeah. So, you know, being the coach that I am, when you ask the, do I need to slow my business down and enable the, the question that I actually wanted to reframe that is how can I continue to pursue my personal growth and business growth without there being a conflict? Right. Um, because you'll have to force, like, it's not, if I can, it's how can I do that? Right. Um, and that it just unlocks different sort of think, ways of thinking about it. But of course, you know, when you split that question, it's three major parts, right? <laughs> One is why do you want your business to grow a certain way? What's that look like? Right. A lot of questions there. So there's like 18 questions under that question. Right. And then there's in what ways do you want to pursue your personal growth? And there's like 18 questions there. Right. And then the, without there being a competition or compromise. Right. And so a um, lot to that, but again, that I think, um, and the reason I asked that one is because, um, quite honestly, about four or five weeks ago, I was asking myself a similar question and I was stuck in the, do I, um, and I realized the answers that I was getting, and then I changed it to how can I, mm-hmm. um, and I started getting better answers and better, better things that were more aligned. And again, not making that competition of that crisis, right. Rather than finding a, a smooth way to, to do both. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the simplest question is the coach, the question my coach asked me all the time is, you know, what, what would you like? What would you like? Do you want to have a business that's super successful and more time off? Do you want to be working all the time? And what would you like? And the truth is we just run on autopilot most of the time thinking that we have to keep doing things the way we've done them before. Um, but you look at any business that keeps doing the things the way they've done it before. And eventually over a long enough period of time, you start to see their, their profits go down. And it's no different with people, right? You want to have a person who's, who's growing in all their sort of personal and professional indicators, they have to be innovating the way they're doing life, the way they're doing business and the way they relate to themselves. Because otherwise over time, like, you know, just, it just, it just naturally goes down. Yeah. I think a trick here though, is that again, if you start getting to that seven, eight range, you're past that hockey stick growth, whether you're talking about business or personal, like you're, it's very, very hard at a certain point to keep doubling and tripling your results or whatever you want to look at there. Right. And you get on this sort of 10, 15% grind, right. To where you're 10, 15% better every year. And you're like, ah, like this, is, I, I don't, I don't get to go from necessarily making, you know, um, 40 K one year to 300 K two years later, like that, that hockey stick may or may not be there. I'm not saying it can't be there. Cause I've learned how wrong I can be when I say things can't happen. <laughs> um, the usual route though, is that people will continue on a 15%. And, you know, you look at a guy, you mentioned Richard Branson, like, you know, if you go roll back 30, 40 years, like if he improved 15% every year, he's exactly where he is now. Mm. Right. Um, unfortunately, I think what, what more often happens is we reach a point of plateau and then we go and start burning everything down. Mm. And so rather than having a ratcheting effect, you know, where you grow a little bit and you ratchet and then you grow a little bit and you ratchet and you sort of maintain that, we actually go through these peaks and valleys. It's kind of like a sine wave, you know, where it's like we have this peak and then we get to the top and either because of an upper limit problem to where we're like, we don't know how to handle this new sense of happiness or because we create some um, 
some internal hypocrisy within ourselves that we have, we figured the only way is to step completely out of it and start over, start over again, better as if we're going to do a better job this time than we did last time. Right. And so the, the goal here, or at least what I would want to introduce is at a certain point in your life, you may not be on that huge hockey stick where it's going up and up and high to the right. It might be a 10, 15% improvement every year. And you know what? That's perfect. Because if you look over the course of 10 years or 15 or 20 years, like if you gave me a hundred bucks today and I gave you 15% on that every year over the course of time, that adds up to be quite a lot. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just be prepared for that. That, that is not that you're doing anything wrong, that you're not going through these catalytic upper things. And, and the truth of the matter is randomly along the way, typically because you'll meet some person, you'll have some sense of positive disruption that you'll up level much faster than you intended to, mm. right? You'll meet that one person that does something, or you'll have this one random business opportunity, or you'll have this random sort of life opportunity, or, you know, you'll find the woman, the woman of your dreams or the man of your dreams. And all of a sudden it's like, Oh wow, this is different. Or you'll have kids or you'll, um, your kids will get out of the house or whatever. Like life introduces these moments of catalytic changes you don't have to necessarily create them for yourself right they will happen yeah we've been um my partner christine and i have been running this um we don't know what to call it exactly i'm, I'm calling it a coaching incubator so we, we run this coaching incubator for coaches that have been coaching for you know maybe six months or a year want to really up their game in coaching and um we've we've built the whole thing around the framework of a martial arts dojo we call it the samurai coaching dojo and we've been reading a lot about belt levels and like the way different martial arts things are described. And we, she wrote, she read this great quote about Japanese swordsmen who the Japanese swordsmen always come from this perspective uh, that there's more to learn. They have this sort of beginner's mind because it's, it's once you think you have a master of something, then very little is possible. Right. And I think Suzuki Roshi said this in a beginner's mind, many things are possible in the master mind. There are a few things that are possible. And so there's this, there's this real sense of embracing the plateau, embracing those dry moments. And I mean, I've had a personal experience of that. Like I, you know, there was a period of time when I was living in, living in a Zen monastery where my meditation just got really dry. We just call the meditation deserts. And for a while, it's all like fireworks and good feelings and interesting insights. You hit this place where it's just like, you are literally sitting four hours a day staring at the floor, mostly wondering why the hell you're doing this. And just like kind of nothing's happening. You're, you're focused on meditation, but there's no fireworks. There's no excitement. There's no insights. There's no cool meditation, but like fun trick things. And it's just dry meditation. I just remember this going through this period. I think it was six months, just really dry meditation, really looking at my life vow. And then all of a sudden, one day I was in the Zendo just sitting there and this, this, uh, this, this vow just came up in, in me that just said, the purpose of your life is to be of deep and fundamental service to others. And it's the core to my personal mission statement, you know, which is, I sussed it out later, but you know, my mission statement is to be of deep and fundamental service to others by helping others walk on the path that leads to awakening by teaching people to embody the values of wisdom and compassion. And that's what I do, right? It's what I do through my coaching. It's what I do through this coaching integrator program. It's what I do with my personal relationships, but it came from this period of super dry meditation. The same thing happened in my coaching business. Like I was really struggling in my coaching business. I was trying to do personal training, trying to do coaching. I was super, super dry. Like nothing was happening. I thought I was in the grind. And then one day I was sitting and meditating. I realized like everything I'm doing about business is wrong. I need to change everything. 
And that's when I read The Prosperous Coach. I completely changed the way I wrote my marketing. I looked at my clients completely differently. And from there on up, like it's just, it is that hockey stick. And so people think that like the obstacles are in opposition to the path, but the obstacles are the path, right? As soon as you set the goal, the obstacles arise. And so I think that if you want to become a lifelong master of growth and success and business and personal life, you have to learn to embrace those plateaus because oftentimes it's the end of those long plateaus that actually the big aha moments come. Yeah, I, I think, and granted, I'm still young, so I have much to learn here. I, I think it's actually resting in the tension between sufficiency and Kaizen, meaning um, that what you have here is great and there's a lot to be grateful for. There's a lot to be blessed for. Life is good, right? The people around you are good. And the Kaizen thing is, and there are things you can do internally largely, but also externally to be a little bit better, right? And resting in that tension between the two, right? Um, Because I think if you go to, well, things can be better, then you're always overlooking what's right in front of you. You're overlooking the treasures in front of you to go find treasures far ashore, right? Um. So that's, that's one sort of tension over there. But if you look at just everything is great today, then you forget that, you know, there actually could be other things that are better, right? There are, there's, you still have work to do. And so living in that tension, um, again, it's a prudence call. And I've been doing much more reading and writing, um, actually. And, you know, we live in this world of quick answers and easy answers and seven step formulas, right? And when you look to the deep wisdom traditions, you get basically, eh, that's a prudence call or that's a judgment call. Like phronesis or wisdom is knowing which of these options to choose in the moment. You're like, well, that's not helpful. Um, well, perhaps not, but that's the truth of it, you know? Yeah, I, I wrote a post once on my blog called Stop Looking for a Perfect System. And because the truth is that for the things that really matter, for the things that require a lot of growth and leadership, there's no system for it. There's no algorithm. There's no algorithm. There's no perfect Charlie algorithm. There's no perfect Toku algorithm that can help you make all your decisions. All you can do is choose and then learn from those choices. And especially when you get to this place of being beyond where you're at, being wise, and you start to violate belonging, it's like you've been dropped in the middle of a new city without a map and without a GPS and without an iPhone and no Siri and no, you know, whatever else. All you can do is you got to walk and say, okay, I get the church is there. And then, okay, that's the coffee shop there. And, and you start to learn your way around and it's going to naturally be clumsy. And if you're not willing to give up your excellence, your ordinary excellence for extraordinary excellence, you're not willing to sacrifice one for the other, then you're really in trouble because you're good. This is as far as you can go. Right. And if you're willing to sacrifice that ordinary excellence for something extraordinary to really become a beginner again, you can, you can be in this place of being in continual wonder and amazement at what life is, can give to you. And like, to me, like that's the biggest benefit of doing being work is like you get to be amazed by life all over again. One of the best pieces of advice my father ever gave me, he said, if you get married, you can't just fall in love with a woman once because she's going to change, right? And you're going to change. You have to master the art of falling in love over and over again. And I think that that's the arc that we have to take when we're running a business, we're leading a thought movement, we're doing all these other things. And we have to learn how to fall in love with the process over and over again, fall in love with the process of creating something that really inspires people, fall in love with the process of building your team, 
fall in love the process of developing a new business. And it's, it's that process of falling in love over and over again that, that pushing your being gives you an opportunity to do. Yeah, I mean, if we were statues living in a static world, then there might be a perfect system. Um, unfortunately, we're organic beings living in a dynamic world. Um, and change is um, Heraclitus, right? Change is the only constant, right? Hmm. Um, and since that's the case, like the systems have to change and evolve the way your days have to change and evolve. Um, your and, and, you know, I love what your dad said there, right? Our recommitment to people to, you know, be continual, but that also means that there are points in times where we decommit to other people and things, right? Um, because again, change, um, beautiful stuff. Well, um, since this is a jam and you're the guest here, um, you get to leave our listeners with a challenge or an invitation. Mm. What would you like that to be? So this is, this is a really, this is going to seem like a really simple and easy challenge. You guys are thinking to think this is like the easiest challenge you've ever gotten, that it is literally the most difficult spiritual undertaking you could do. So for one week, just try to make all your decisions based upon the question in this moment, what would bring me joy? I did this challenge. My coach gave me this challenge and I did this challenge a while ago. And it was so difficult because what I realized was that the majority of the decisions that I make on a daily basis are based on obligations, are based on shoulds, are based on other people's expectations. Now, it doesn't mean that you should like leave your kid at school because he's annoying that day, not going to pick him up, right? You can still make choices that maybe don't bring you joy. But just really pause when you make a decision and ask the question, what would bring me joy? And you'll start to really realize that so many of the choices that we make are not based upon taking care of our own well-being. And, and then sort of like bonus challenge would be in one of those situations where it feels edgy for you, choose joy, notice the guilt that you feel. That's the guilt of getting what you want and just breathe into that feeling. That's really the key. Learning to master that art of feeling the guilt of getting what you want is really the art of continual growth and changing being on a fundamental level. That's wonderful. Toku, thanks so much for joining me today and look forward to conversations in the future as well. Thank you, Charlie. Okay, Creative Giants. So you heard it from Toku. For the next week, ask yourself the question. In this moment, what would bring me joy? And lean into the discomfort of choosing joy and accepting the guilt that may follow. Until next time, stand tall. If you're digging the Creative Giant Show, I'd really appreciate it if you leave a rating or review on iTunes. If you're not familiar with how to do this, there's a walkthrough available on the podcast page on ProductiveFlourishing.com. Thanks. Thanks for listening to The Creative Giant Show. To find more tools and inspiration for creative giants, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. Stand tall, creative giant.